Well, good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're here. For those of you who are watching at home or outside, welcome. And if this is your first time, my name's um, Pastor Dave Fukuyama, and I'm the senior pastor here. And, you know, we do see some new faces. And, you know, today we're going to talk about joy, right? And, and joy is something we see it on Christmas cards, you know, joy to the world, rejoice, you know, the, you know, God has sent his son. We see it on TV commercials or TV shows, right? The joy of Christmas. But let me ask you today, if you were to take a look at your joy meter, what is it right now? On a scale from 1 to 10, as you are sitting here right now, and I don't want to raise a hand, or I don't, no numbers, how joyful do you feel? You know, some of you might be like eight, you know, nine. Some of you might be like looming over one or two, right? But today we're going to talk about the joy of the Lord. And for those of you who don't know me, this is actually my second career, where I spent a good portion of time in the airline industry. Yeah, I was a, I spent a lot of, and, and most of the time I was a supervisor at Continental Airlines, um, at a passenger service supervisor, Continental Airlines, where I worked, uh, oversaw the ticket counter or the gate area or baggage service. And most of the time, since I was a junior supervisor, I was stuck in baggage service because no one wants to work there. All you do is get yelled at and screamed at. We either lost your luggage or we damaged your luggage. So everybody is just mad coming off a miserable flight and to see us. But you know, one thing I learned is I learned to really not like Christmas. I really did not anticipate, I didn't really look forward to Christmas. And the reason being, because I know in like the two weeks prior to Christmas and the two weeks after Christmas, it was going to be miserable for me. Because this is one of the busiest travel times of the year. I knew I was going to be yelled at, cussed at, and verbally abused for those four-week period. And all of us in the airline industry said, oh man, we hate Christmas. Because this is a time where we are going to get, you know, verbally abused. And I don't know what it is about people. Yes, I know you're anxious. Perfectly good and nice people. When you walk through that door into the terminal, you change. You change. And I don't get it because I get the anxiety level is here. But oh my goodness. You, you would see, the, the, and then people would often tell me, you know what, I'm sorry, they're really not like that. And I go, well, you couldn't tell me. You know, I just got cussed at. What do you mean, he, you know, this person isn't like that? But I would always have to work on Christmas, because I was the most junior supervisor. And actually, the time I liked most about it was I had to work the night shift. So Christmas Day evening, in the evening at the airport was the quietest time in the year. You know, peace on earth, goodwill to men, is working at the airport on Christmas evening. <laughs> Empty. Nobody, everybody who wanted to go where they wanted to go, they already did that. Right? But then part of it, I was thinking as I look back to it, I was a believer. It wasn't like I wasn't, you know. I was just a few, I was years away from being a pastor. So how could this future pastor, you know, hate Christmas so much? That doesn't seem to, you know, make any sense. But I understood that I wasn't living as a recipient of God's salvation, 
It's kind of like what Taylor was saying, that the joy of the Lord comes from our relationship with God. And when we're not walking with the Lord, our joy isn't there. And as I'm looking back, I said, why didn't I use these experiences to be the gospel message, to be the Bible to all of these people who were just angry and miserable? I could have done that. And I look back and I said, Dave, there were so many opportunities for me to do that. But what? I wasn't walking with the Lord at that time. And so some of us right now might, might not be feeling the joy of the Lord. And, and the main point is this, is we experience God's joy when we live as recipients of God's salvation. Okay, we experience God's joy when we live as recipients of God's salvation, meaning the source of our joy is the salvation that we have and the relationship we have with God. See, God's joy is qualitatively different than the joy we experience, and we will learn that is only those who have a relationship with God can experience this. Because for the most part, everyone could experience joy, right? We experience joy at significant events, whether it's a wedding or a birth of a child. Everybody could experience joy during that time, you know, because it's a celebratory time. Or when we have a positive experience, maybe we were promoted. Maybe our favorite sports team wins an important game. Maybe we got a good grade in school. Or maybe you entered into a romantic relationship with a person that, man, you've been waiting to get into a relationship for a long time, and there's this great joy. Well, yes, we all experience that. But the joy of the Lord can only be experienced by those who are in a right relationship with him. And so, like I said before, maybe you're not feeling that joy right now because there have been plenty of times when I haven't um, felt that. But today we're going to learn how to get that joy back because God wants us to experience joy. God wants us to, you know, our joy meter to be off the charts. Why? Because God is the most joyful being in this entire universe. Did you know that? God is the most, is the happiest and the most joyful being in the entire universe. And if we are supposed to be like Jesus, who is God in the flesh, what does he want us? He wants us to have that joy too. But you know what the good thing is? We could have it. And it's not based upon your circumstances, right? I just blew it when I was at Continental. I could have had that joy when people were cussing at me and calling me all kinds of names. I could have had that joy, right? But I chose not to because I wasn't living as a recipient of God's salvation. And so if you have your Bibles, can you turn with me to Luke chapter 2 verse 1 and we're going to read the verses that the youth advisors read when they lit the advent candle. It says, in the days of Caesar Augustus, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a degree, decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place by Quirinius 
the, was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Okay, so they, a census had to be taken, and primarily um, they took a census for two reasons. One was to uh, see how many people uh, inhabited or the Roman Empire so they could tax them, and number two was for military um, recruitment. But the pro- with the, the Israelites, they were not allowed to join the military, so this census was taken so they would, the Roman government would know who they could tax and how much money they could bring into the Roman gov- empire. And then so go on to verse 4. It says, So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Now, even though Joseph wasn't Jesus's physical father, he was Jesus's legal father. And it shows that he was from the line of David, which fulfills a prophecy that the Messiah was going to come from the line of David. And in Micah 5, 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me the one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and the ancient time. So once again, we see that Joseph is from the line of David, fulfilling the prophecy. But we see another prophecy filled here by Micah. Earlier, when he said the Savior, the Messiah, was going to come out of Bethlehem. Now you got to realize that Bethlehem was a city of no significance. I guarantee you, if Jesus was not born there, we would never even know about Bethlehem, right? You wouldn't know. It wasn't like New York. It wasn't like Los Angeles. It wasn't like Chicago. It was like this little small town. And the only significance is that it was part of a prophecy that the Savior, that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. But you know what this shows? Is that God's sovereign will is being done whether we know it or not. That God has a plan for each one of us, and he's carrying it out, right? He's carrying it out. And sometimes we may not think that he's doing it. Sometimes we might feel that he doesn't care. Because if you look at Joseph and Mary, right, they were poor. They, weren't any, they didn't have any status. And so we think, why would the Messiah come from Joseph and Mary? And here they were walking to, you know, Bethlehem, this tiny city, you would think that if the, the Messiah was going to come and that this person was going to be the one to save the nation of Israel and eventually us, he would have been born in Jerusalem, which is the holy city, right? But no, he was born in this in, in, insignificant town from insignificant people. But it goes to show who's on God's heart. Because Jesus didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save the sinners. And and you look at people like Mary and Joseph who are saying, you know, who are we? We're nobodies. But God says, you know what? I make a living at using nobodies. Look at the Bible. Look at all of the great people that God uses. You think they were somebody when God used them? So you could be sitting here right now and maybe, just maybe, kind of like um, Taylor was saying, is God, how could you use me? I'm busy. I got all of these plans. You know, I, there's no way I'm going to burn out. But God is using her significantly to impact our youth. 
And you might be sitting here today saying, I'm a nobody. But guess what? You are somebody that God could do great things with. And we see that here. And in verse uh, 5, it says, He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a, in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And so here they go to Jerusalem, um, Be- uh, Bethlehem in order to uh, sign up for the census. And you've got to realize Bethlehem's not like Los Angeles. It's not like Jerusalem where there are plenty of places to stay. There were probably only a few places to stay. And those who stayed there were probably who? Wealthy individuals. The wealthy had a place to stay. But Mary and Joseph weren't wealthy. So they went to the inn, and there were so many people there, there was no room. And so what they had to do is they probably had to stay in an area where their guests held their livestock. That's why there was a manger there. And for those of you who, are, who don't know this, a manger is not a nice crib. A manger was a feeding trough, kind of like what you would see right there, right? It's a trough where they put food in it to feed the animals. And this is where the Messiah was born. Not in the throne room, but he was born in a place where guests kept their animals. Once again, humble beginnings. Humble beginnings. The creator of the universe, the one who created the most beautiful places on this planet, was what? Born in a feeding trough, right? Isn't that amazing? But this humble beginnings, it set the tone on who Jesus came to save and the people who would choose to receive him and follow him. Because if we look through Jesus' time, who were the people that received Jesus? It wasn't the wealthy. It was the poor. It was the ones who said, you know, we're the outcasts. We're the ones that society looks down on. We're the ones that people make fun of. We're the ones that were the butt end of everybody's jokes because we don't have all of the things they have. We're the ones who have to clean up after them, right? Those are the people. These are the surroundings that the king was born into. So it kind of gave us a picture of who he came to save. He wasn't born in the Jerusalem, the holy city. He was born in a manger. In Luke 2, chapter 8, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And so we see that uh, it, it changes now, scenery. So we're in Bethlehem, but now we're in the surrounding area. And so you see these shepherds who are watching over their sheep. Now you think, oh, shepherds, you know, we think of Linus, right, in the peanuts. You know, he's there. You know, what a cute kid, right? He's got his little staff there and his head's all wrapped with his security blanket, right? But, you know, back in those days, shepherds were considered one of the worst of sinners. 
and they were looked down by their fellow Jews. They were outcast. You didn't want to uh, know a shepherd. You didn't want to be friends with shepherd. You didn't even want to be associated with a shepherd because they were considered sinners. They were considered outcasts. No religious person would be associated with these guys. Why? Well, because being a shepherd is a 24-7 job. They were watching their uh, flocks the entire time. Therefore, there was no time for them to come into the temple to worship, to offer sacrifices. They were out doing their work. But they were also working on the Sabbath, which was against the law. And so people viewed them as outcasts, people that I don't want to hang out with, right? But then what do we see here? Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Once again, Mary and Joseph, insignificant people. They had to walk to Bethlehem. They were probably in a caravan. We don't know if she was on an animal or not, but they were poor, so we don't know if they could even afford that. And could you imagine a pregnant woman having to walk, you know, to another city? And then we were saying they were born in Bethlehem, insignificant city. It's nothing. Jesus was born in a manger, And now we see this. The first people to hear about the Messiah's birth were who? They were outcasts. They were people that you didn't want to associate with. But you know what? The two greatest announcements in the history of the world were given to people who were seen as unreliable. The birth of the Messiah, it was was told to the shepherds. They were seen as sinners and unreliable. The resurrection. Who was the first people that knew about the resurrection? Was it the disciples? No, it was women. And at that time, women were considered unreliable witnesses. So do you, do you start to see a pattern here of how God works? And it doesn't matter who you are. That God didn't come to the righteous. He came to the people who were seen as unreliable. The shepherds at the birth, the women at the resurrection. That means if you're sitting here and you think that, you know what? You know, I've messed up my life. You know, I'm not perfect, right? I'm far from what people would think would be a good Christian. Well, you know what? You're on God's heart. You're on God's heart because that's who the shepherds were. And it says, we experience God's joy when we understand the magnitude of our salvation. And this is important because what was the good news that would bring great joy to these shepherds who thought, who knew they were outcasts? Have, I mean, don't raise your hand, but have any of you been shunned by people? Have any of you been ostracized by people? Have any of you been made fun of people and you're kind of lonely because all of the people left you? Well, these were the shepherds. Right? But what wonderful news for them to hear the angel says, salvation is coming. And guess what? It's for you guys. It's for you guys. I know you don't think you're worthy. I know you've been told a thousand times that you're, you're going to hell. 
because you're sinners, but salvation is coming to you. That's what was great joy. And so they understood their sin. But we experience joy when we understand the magnitude of our salvation. And this is why I constantly say, when I see Jesus, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fall on my knees and I'm going to thank him for saving me. Because you might think of me as one way. I know me. I know my thought life. I've known my past. And I know that if there was anyone not qualified to do this, it would be me. But in God's infinite wisdom and grace, he chose me to be a pastor. And, so when, and I understand the magnitude of my sin. And so when I get down, I, there's no way, no way that I believe that I could have ever earned heaven on my own. You might, think I can, you might think so because you see me up here, but I know me. And, you know, we all see you, but you know you also, right? You know the things that I don't know about you, but you know who knows that? God does. God does. But the magnitude of his salvation is what? He forgives us, and there's nothing either one of us could have done to earn it. And this is where the power of Romans 5.20, where the Apostle Paul says, where the law increased, sin increased. So we see that, you know, God's law increased. So why? We could be more and more aware of our sin. And that's kind of like a bummer, right? Because every time we think we're doing good, then all of a sudden, boom, up. There's another law, Dave, you, you, broke that one. It's like, oh man. So it's almost like, yes, our sin's increasing because the law is increasing. However, what does he follow up that way? But he says, where sin increased, what increased also? Grace increased ever the more. So mainly what he was saying, yes, God knows that we sin. God knows that we are not perfect. But what he was saying is when we sin, there's always God's grace to cover that. I mean, isn't that wonderful? That you, no matter what the magnitude you feel of your sins, that God's grace will cover that. Everything you commit. There's nothing you could do that's outside of God's forgiveness. But sometimes we don't go there. Because we're afraid. Sometimes we don't go there because we are ashamed. Instead of going to the foot of Jesus on the cross, we run away from God. But if you understand the magnitude of your sin, which I think a lot of us do, right? It's when we go to God and we experience his salvation. That's where joy comes from. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, it says, This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Now, the really sign here was not the cloth, right? Because every Jewish mother, you know, when they gave birth, would wrap their child or newborn in a cloth. So, that you know, if they said, okay, this is your sign that that's a Messiah, then they would go and they'd see all these babies wrapped in cloth. And, well, which one? Which one? But the key is that they would be what? Lying in a manger. Why? Because no Jewish mother would put their newborn child into a feeding trough. They were dirty. It was filled with bacteria. You would not put a newborn baby in a feeding trough. But that was a sign that the shepherds would know 
that this was the Messiah. And I'm sure they were puzzled to go, what? The Messiah born in a, in a, in a feeding trough. But then in verse 13, it says, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on to whom his favor rests. It says, the second, as We experience God's joy when we yield our will to his will. We experience joy because of Christ's death on the cross. We now have peace with God. And this is what he meant when he says peace on earth. It's not peace that, okay, everything's going to be free of um, conflict. He said the peace that we will have now is because of Jesus Christ and his future death on the cross for us. We will be at peace with God. Romans um, 5, 10, 9 and uh, 10 says this, and since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Okay, so when Christ died on the cross and we accepted him as our Lord and Savior, our relationship with him was made right. But look what he goes on to say. He said, For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through life of his son. Before we were saved, we were what? God's enemies. And this is why only believers can have the joy of the Lord because it is only until we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior where we our friendship as the Bible said could be restored. But until then, it, Paul says what? We are enemies of God. And it's not that God hates us, but we fight God, right? We fight God. You know, before we came to know Jesus, didn't we fight God? He said, I want to do things my way, not your way. I want to determine what's right and wrong for me. Not you, God, right? I know what's best for me, not you. You know, I don't acknowledge your sovereignty in my life. I acknowledge my sovereignty in my life. And that's the way we were before we became believers. So we were fighting God. We were his enemies. But because God sent his son to die on the cross, for those of us who believe that relationship's been restored. We are no longer enemies, and we have peace with God. It says, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds had said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And so when we experience God's peace, joy, we tell others about it. You got that? When we experience God's joy, we can't help but tell others about it. Because you all know when something good happens to you, what's the first thing you want to do? For those of us who are older, Facebook. For those of you who are younger, Instagram, Twitter, or whatever you use, right? When something good happens to you, you want everybody to know about it. And this is what happened to the shepherds. You know, they go, oh my goodness. You know, we are sinners, we're outcasts, but hey, this is what happened to us. And so we saw <laughs> the Messiah. And so what they did is they wanted to tell everybody about that. 
You know, I met with this individual, you know, this past week who, you know, met the Lord. And until they met the Lord, their life was a struggle. But they met the Lord. They turned his his life over to the Lord. And his life completely changed. And so he called me up and he wanted to talk to me about it. Then how I could guide him in the future. But he was telling me, Dave, my life has changed so much. He said, my marriage is so much better. I'm a better father. He goes, I just want to tell people about it it how do i do that how do i do that why he experienced the joy of the lord through the salvation and he wanted like the shepherds he wanted to tell everybody about it and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them right but mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart what a wonderful experience that would have been for mary Number one, she was told by the angel that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, but then it was confirmed by these shepherds who also heard that message, and they told her what the angel said about her baby. And it says, Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen, heard and seen, which were just as they were told. When we experience God's joy, we glorify and praise him. When we experience God's joy, just like the shepherds did, we glorify God and we praise them. So let me ask you the question. Are you experiencing God's joy this season? Are you experiencing a joy that you just can't wait to tell others about it? Are you experiencing God's joy that compels you to glorify and praise him? Is that you right now? Are you feeling, experience that joy? Right? Maybe some, and I would say there's, you know, some of us that don't, right? Because I get it. And this is one principle that I want you to leave with. If you are, you and I, and I've been there, if we are not experiencing joy, it is because of this. And this is important. We will not experience God's joy is if we are living as if we were not saved by God's grace. You get that? You understand that? We will not experience God's joy if we are not living as if we are living as if we were not saved by God's grace. This is an all-time truth. This will never ever change. This will not change. This is absolute. If you are living your life as the way we were when we were God's enemies. And I get it because I've done that. We've all done that. If you're here sitting today, well, you know what? I want to do things my way. Or I want to determine what's right and wrong in, for my life. Or I know what's best for me. God, not you. Or I don't want to acknowledge your sovereign will in me. As a believer, if that's you right now, what? You're not going to experience you know, God's joy. And, and for most of us, we have to understand that sin robs us from the joy. Disobedience robs us from the joy. And I'm not talking about the big sins. We all have a list, right, of, oh, these are the big ones, and these are the, meh. these are the okay ones. They're not so bad. But, you know, it's the little ones, whether it's impatience, selfish, lack of caring for others, gossip. Those are the things that rob us from our joy. We don't think so, but it's that. Because why? This principle is in play, and it doesn't change. That we will not experience God's joy if we are living as if we are not saved by the grace of God. 
You know, King David understood this when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan after committing adultery and murder. And this is what he says in Psalms 51, starting with verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit in me. Do not banish me from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now listen up to this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. What does he say? His joy was gone. Why? Because he disobeyed God. But what did he do? If you read Psalm 51, it's a beautiful psalm of David coming forth before the Lord and confessing what he's did. But what does he want? He said, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's what the angel was saying, right? Because when David understood he was saying that saved, that there was a joy. He, yet, was he saved when he, you know, committed adultery and murder? Yes, he was. He was a man after God's own heart. But what does it say here? I'm not feeling joy. That salvation that gave me joy is no longer there because of my mistakes. And he's pleading with God to what? Restore the joy of his salvation. And how do we do that? And I hope you know how powerful this one verse is. First, First John 1, 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you guys understand just the power of that promise to each one of us? That if we confess our sins, he, meaning God, who is faithful and just. You know, justice is that God is faithful to his promise to forgive us. That if you confess, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done. If you confess that God is faithful and just and he will forgive you even though we have failed to live up to the standard he wants us to live, okay? And I'm going to conclude with this. We can experience God's joy if we confess our sins and obey his word. You're not experiencing joy right now. My guess is that you're living a life not as a recipient of God's uh, grace, the salvation that he um, gave to us, right? And because I've seen that in a lot of people's lives, including our own. But how do we get back that joy? It's simple. It says we can experience God's joy if what? We confess our sins and obey his word. And that happened to me this week. I had this sermon all down at the start of this week. And, you know, Grace and I were at a, a, a Christmas party yesterday. And I was even talking to Danny Tanaka back there at this party. And I was saying, oh, we got to leave early because I got to work on my sermon because it's something's not sitting right with that. You know, and Danny being the encourager said, hey, Dave, it's good. It, it'll be good. But as I was coming home, driving with my, you know, with Grace, she goes, so how are you feeling? I said, you know what? Something is not right about this sermon. I thought I had it down. It, it makes sense, but it's not right. And, and Steve, you know that, right? You've prepared a sermon, and it's, there's something inside of you that, yeah, it makes sense, but this isn't right. And so I started working at it again. It's 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night. I'm looking at it, and I'm just going, what is going on here? It's, I'm, I'm getting frustrated, and I'm going, okay, God, if I'm just going to pull out an old sermon, 
you know, an old Christmas sermon. Man, I don't even remember what I preached last Christmas. I know they won't remember what I preached 10 years ago, you know. So I'm going to preach. And the thing is, I never, ever uh, do use old sermons. And the reason I do, it's harder to prepare. But when I prepare anew every single Sunday, it forces me to study. It forces me to learn. So I never, ever repeat sermons. I never use old sermons. Although last night at 12 o'clock, I was tempted to do so, right? But then right then, I heard God's voice. And he said, Dave, there's an area in your life that you are not living as a recipient of my salvation. And then I go, what is it? Then he brought it to mind that I was not living. And so what did I do? 1 John 1, 9. I spent a lot of time just confessing that. Confessing my sin to God, acknowledging that what I was doing was wrong, asking for his forgiveness, asking that he would restore the, restore the joy of my salvation. But I want to make it clear to you, when God let me know that was preventing me from doing the sermon that he wanted to me, he to hear, it was not a judgmental voice. It was not. It was the reason that you are not, you, your experience is blocked because there's an area of your life that, are, that you are not living as a recipient of my salvation. And it was that. And so for those of you who, yes, we, we make mistakes, but if the voice that you hear up here is a judgmental one, is a harsh voice, I could promise you based on Scripture that that voice is not God's voice. If you're hearing these judgmental thoughts in your mind, those thoughts are either coming from Satan himself or you. I could promise you it's not coming from God. Because when I heard God's voice, it was a gentle voice. It was a peaceful voice. But I got the message. And so I just prayed and I said, God, I'm going to walk away from this and, you know, do something. But then right in there, he gave me, he goes, Dave, I want you to change it up. So 2 o'clock in the morning, the happiest place and the most joyful place in the world was my den in the city of San Gabriel. Because I was praising God and I was just laughing. I was joyful. Yes, I was tired. But what? God restored the joy of my salvation. And he could do that for you. But it's going to take for you to go before God instead of running from God when we make mistakes, going to him and experiencing his grace and mercy. But this is why it's so important for you and I to know the Bible. You have to know God's voice. And I'm going to say this again. God's voice is not judgmental. God's voice is not condescending. God's voice is not harsh. It's loving. It's peaceful. It's calm, but you get it. <laughs> you get it, right? And so I, that's what I pray for each one of you. If you're sitting here right now and you're not experiencing the joy of God, there's something going on in your life where you're not living as recipients of God's grace. Do not feel guilty about it because we all do that. God knows that. That's why he put John 1.9 in there, First John, John 1.9. All you have to do is confess it. Ask God to restore the joy of your salvation and he will do it. 
So what's a weekly challenge? I want us to read Luke chapter 2, 1 through 20 daily. I want you to read this every day. Then I want you to ask God to identify, if you're not feeling joy right now, ask God to identify any areas in your life that are robbing you of joy. Because there's probably something going on in your life that you're not living as recipients of God's grace, and that's preventing you from experiencing joy because it prevented me all week from experiencing the joy. All I experienced was frustration. And then confess them to God and experience the joy of his salvation. And this is what I want you to do. Read Luke 2, 1 to 20 on Christmas Day before you open your presents. And share how God spoke to you this week through your devotional reading of Luke 2, 1 through 20. Especially you parents, right? Ever since Michael was, even though he couldn't understand, before we opened our presents, we would always, I would always read Luke 2, 1 to 20. So he understood what the meaning of Christmas was. It wasn't about the presents. It was about Jesus. And then hopefully, as your children get older and older, they'll be reminded. So parents, it's important for you. Don't let your kids just rip up with the presents. Say, stop. We are going to read Luke chapter 2, 1 through 20. Let's pray. Worship team, please come forward. And Caleb, you could have your stand back. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much, Father, that you've given me such a joyful heart when less than, I don't know, eight hours ago, I was just filled with frustration and anxiety. That's because I wasn't living as a recipient of your salvation. But Lord, I thank you so much that you love us. I thank you so much that you understand that, yes, Lord, we're not perfect. And it's your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for all of our sins to give us salvation. That is a source of our joy, our relationship with you. And thank you so much for reminding me of that last night. But Father, I know that there are people here who aren't experiencing joy right now. And they're experiencing it just because they're not living as recipients of your salvation. They're your children. You love them very much. But Father, you love them too much to allow them to continue on in this behavior. So Father, I ask that you were let them know that they are not living as recipients of your salvation. But Father, I pray that each person here will be able to distinguish your gentle, loving correction from the harsh voices that are going in their head, knowing that those voices do not come from you. Those voices either come from themselves or our enemy. So I'd like you to take a few moments here and just ask God to reveal any areas in your life where you are not living as recipients of God's grace. And I pray you hear God's gentle voice. And if you're hearing a harsh voice, 
it's not from God. If you're hearing a judgmental voice, it's not from God. And then just tell God that you're sorry and ask for God's power to transform your life to help change that behavior. Oh, Father, we're so grateful that you could, as in David's life, you could restore the joy of our salvation. And it's a joy that's qualitatively different than the joy that somebody who does not know you have. Father, we can't explain it. The only way we could maybe even come close to explaining it is just by experiencing it. And we just know, we just know that joy is from you. Lord, I pray for each person here. I pray, Father, that this Christmas season that they will experience your joy, the joy of your salvation. Father, the good news that you gave to the shepherd, that for all people, that a Savior was born to them who would save the world from their sins. Father, I pray that each one of us here would experience your joy this upcoming week. In your son's name we pray, amen.